The information on this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not contain or constitute and should not be interpreted as any form of medical advice or opinion. You should always seek the advice of your healthcare provider about any questions or concerns that you may have. Hello everyone, my name is Juliana Aiken. I'm the host of the Unfiltered podcast and a co-founder of Unfiltered. Today I'm interviewing Monica Amorosi. She's a licensed psychotherapist and has experience working with the full spectrum of interpersonal violence. Starting in the field, she initially worked with children displaced from their homes due to domestic abuse. In her initial clinical work, she provided treatment to adult perpetrators of abuse, giving her insight into what drives abusive or narcissistic behaviors. Over time, her work shifted to address complex trauma for the most vulnerable victims of abuse. She has helped people escape violent situations, establish better functioning, and work towards rebuilding a healthy life after abuse. She is passionate about community-level healing and creating worlds that feel safer for the most vulnerable. In this episode, we will focus on attachment styles. How we attach to others has profound implications on our relationships, communication, and even our self-worth. During this episode, we'll be addressing questions such as how do different attachment styles impact the way we express and receive love? How do attachment styles impact our ability to set boundaries in relationships? What steps can someone take to repair an insecure attachment style? And much more. Let's get started. Do certain certain attachment styles gravitate towards each other? And if yes, what and why? Absolutely. Um, and I think before I can answer this question fully, it's helpful for us to take a step back and look at what attachment is. Mm-hmm. Um, attachment, I think, is more helpful to think of as like a language we learn as opposed to a set of behaviors or actions we take. Uh, attachment is one of the first kind of developmental things that grow in us as human beings. It's supposed to keep us connected and safe because the people that have the most supports and the most connections have the best capacity for quality of life. And depending on the language we're taught in our home, when we go out into the world and seek out relationships, we're going to naturally gravitate towards language that feels comfortable um, and understandable to us. And so if you think about that as far as attachment style goes, you don't look at someone and just know what their attachment is, but you start to pick up on those signs and there's almost like this reflex of whether we feel close or whether we want to take a step back. And there are patterns of attachment styles that tend to link up a little closer with each other. Um, To start, secure attachment, right? Secure attachment is the healthiest attachment. It's Attachment that's founded in feeling trustworthy and close and caring, uh, caring about ourselves and equally caring about our partners. And so secure people are far more likely to connect with other secure people. Those tend to be the happiest, healthiest relationships. Um, but when we look at some of the more disrupted attachments, say, for example, like anxious, anxious attachment, um, they're far more likely to connect with a wide range because an anxiously attached person feels a very strong drive to connect. Um, But that also puts them at risk. And so if we talk about some of the risky ways that attachments are kind of drawn to each other, it's always important that we start with anxious attached first. Um, If I'm anxiously attached, I'm afraid of being abandoned. 
And I also have the lower capacity to protect myself in the relationship, which puts me at risk of attaching and connecting to people that don't have my best interest. And so one of the very first most common pairings is the anxious avoidant pairing, right? And so if you think of how they connected first, I'm an anxious person. I want someone to care about me. And the avoidant person also wants someone to care about them. And so at first, there might be a, there might be some good compatibility. There might be some good connection. But then the avoidant is going to pull back. That's going to drive the anxious person to step forward even more. And so as the avoider pulls, the anxious follows, and that can get them wrapped up in a pretty chaotic and tumultuous connection together. Um, but anxious attached people are also far more likely to connect with kind of a more unknown attachment style, um, which I call the self-focused attachment style, where the relationship really serves the focus of just meeting my needs. I don't really care about your needs. And so if someone who's anxious comes into my space, they also only care about my needs and they don't care if I meet their needs that poses a really high risk of that anxious attached person getting taken advantage of or even abused in the relationship. From there, avoiders don't tend to connect to avoiders because they'll just walk away from each other, you know? <laughs> um, and avoiders are kind of hard to pin down for any one attachment style uh, because avoiders are really good at just walking away when something doesn't feel quite right. Um, but then when we look at someone who's a little more disorganized, Sometimes they're anxious and sometimes they avoid. They can also get sucked up into that web of people that are more self-focused and harmful in their attachment styles. Um, anyone can end up with anyone. Any attachment style can end up with any attachment style. But individuals who are anxiously attached are at far more risk of getting sucked into the web of people who can't treat them the way they need to be treated in relationships. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for that overview. And what do you think, how do attachment styles exactly get damaged in relationships? And how can someone recognize if their attachment style has been damaged in a relationship? Absolutely. Um, attachment style can, can be damaged, um, or we can also think of it can be adapted based on how others treat me, how I treat others, and then also how I treat myself. And so there are a few kind of components that we want to look at in our attachment. The first is how comfortable do I feel in being close, close physically and close emotionally? Um, does it feel good for me to have someone know about me? And does it feel good for me to share with another person? That's really what we mean by closeness. And if in your relationship, you notice that there's a big shift in your desire for closeness, all of a sudden you crave it more and you need more from your partner, or all of a sudden you want to step back, you don't want to share and you don't want to receive, it's a pretty big indicator that something has been disrupted in your attachment. The next thing that we want to look at is what is your risk of avoidance and isolating? If you notice all of a sudden that you really just want to spend a lot of your time alone or the opposite, you cannot stand being alone and you desperately need to be in the presence of another person all the time. It's a pretty big indicator that our attachment style has been disrupted. And that similar vein, we have enmeshment. Um, and enmeshment is different than closeness because closeness is like the experience of sharing 
Whereas enmeshment is the intensity of how involved you are. Do you want to solve all their problems? Do you want to know their plans? Do you want to have some level of control over them? Um, do you want to be embedded in their life? And when there's a big shift in how embedded you need to be with someone or the opposite, you want nothing to do or you want them to have nothing to do with you, you've probably had some damage in our attachment. And the final piece um, is our fear of abandonment, our fear of rejection, and our fear of judgment. Uh, attachment is supposed to protect us from abandonment. And if all of a sudden in my relationship, I have this new fear or this more intense fear of being left, I can't trust that my partner is stable. I can't trust that my partner is safe. Um, I can't trust that the relationship is going to withstand. Then that's also a pretty big indicator that our attachment has been broken. And because relationships are so complex, so many different things can cause this damage. Did they betray me? Did they hurt me in some way? Did they disappoint me? Was there some kind of traumatic experience that took place in or out of the relationship? You know, has there been a shift in my mental health and the way that I see myself as worthy of love? Um, and so attachment can really be disrupted by many things, but looking at closeness, avoidance, enmeshment, and abandonment, those are really the greatest signs to look at. Mm, okay, thank you. I'm thinking like, uh, if I have an avoidant attachment, is it always that it's as uh, kind of stems from my childhood or can I have a healthy attachment, secure, then end up in a relationship that's abusive and develop? Uh, oh, like, yeah. That's possible? Oh, yeah. Okay. Our attachment, um, we have what's called our baseline attachment. And this is kind of, well, the baseline of how all of our relationships are going to look moving forward. That's usually developed in the first five years of life. Depending on how chaotic and disruptive my life is, I could have a baseline of disorganized or insecure attachment that's always going to be a little disorganized no matter how much I heal. But attachment is flexible. Um, I call it semi-permanent. It stays the same until we have something powerful enough to get in there and change it. But the thing is, is that power can be both negative or positive. Um, and the other thing that's really unfortunate is it's much easier to damage attachment than it is to heal attachment. And so if you think of someone who grew up in a healthy, safe, loving, predictable home environment, they could be very securely attached to their parents. They could go on to school and be very securely attached to their peers. They could trust the world around them. And then all of a sudden, someone can enter into their lives that has very malicious intention. Maybe they're really good at hiding this malicious intention up front. Um, and then this securely attached person trusts them. They expect that they'll meet their needs. They expect that they'll be safe. And then all of a sudden they're hit with the incredible betrayal trauma where this person that was supposed to be safe ended up being very harmful. And when that happens, that can shake the secure person's entire worldview. Maybe up until this point, I thought everyone will take care of me. And now I realize they won't. Whoa, now I trust people less. And because I trust people less, my fears are bigger. I don't want to be as close. Maybe I start to avoid a little bit more. Or maybe the opposite happens. They hurt me. And I think, well, then I must have done something. Because up until this point, no one has hurt me before. 
So maybe I want more closeness. I become more self-degrading and more self-sacrificial and I might become more anxious. And from that relationship, depending on how I'm supported and what future relationships come, determine whether I can return back to secure or if I stay in a more broken state of my attachment. Um, And so then if you think about people who grew up in households that were chaotic, unpredictable, abusive, inconsistent, um, they're far more likely to have a baseline that's a little more destabilized. And so someone loving and healthy could come into their life and get totally rejected. And that's why healing attachment in adulthood is so much harder because we don't recognize healthy things as good. We recognize them as unfamiliar and we're far more likely to stay away. Mm, Thank you. Makes sense. Another question that I have is that could it be that depending what type of people I interact with or enter into relationship with, yeah, let's say enter into relationship with, can, for example, I become, depending on the other person, let's say I'm, I'm a secure, I have relatively secure attachment. And then the other person is voidant or more avoidant that I kind of gravitate towards anxious and then and or let's say that I enter into a relationship with a person who has anxious attachment style, that I as a secure person might become a little bit more avoidant. Absolutely. Okay. Um, and I think to make it a little more clear, I want to just expand mm. a little. Yeah, thank you. Walking away from a relationship is not necessarily a sign of disrupted attachment. Walking away from a relationship that doesn't meet our needs is actually a really great sign of health. As long as it's done in a moderated and not co- coercive or harmful way, right? So let's say I'm secure. I am going to have far better boundaries. I'm going to have a much greater sense of what it means to be taken care of. And I'm going to have a much keener eye on how to tell if someone is healthy or if they can't meet my needs. And so let's say I start talking to someone who's uh, anxious and they start laying it on thick. And maybe they want a lot from me. They don't really want me to take care of them at all. As a secure person, I might go, this isn't really meeting my needs. Nice person, not compatible. I'm going to step away. That does not mean that I've developed an avoidant attachment. That means I was secure. And I found that this just wasn't meeting my needs. But let's say that happens over and over. Or over and over, these people that come into my life are not quite meeting my needs. Then... It's through the repetition and compounding of unhealthy relationships where I might go, what the heck is going on with these people? I don't want to date anyone. And now all of a sudden, my capacity to trust partners gets broken because I've had this repetition of unhealthy people coming into my space. From there, it can, of course, still be changed and altered. But now I'm shifting much more likely into being an avoidant person. And the more insecure our attachment is, Um, the less likely we are to walk away from things that are unhealthy. You know, even if you think of someone who's an avoider, avoiders walk away from healthy relationships more likely than they walk away from unhealthy. Because an avoider still, to some degree, has a fear of abandonment. An avoider still wants to be loved. And so if you have someone who's anxious, who keeps trying and trying and trying and trying, the avoider, to some degree, might go, well, maybe this is evidence that they are stable. Look how hard they're trying. Maybe I will keep giving them a chance. Whereas a secure person would have just said, okay, we tried. 
you know, I'm going to go try somewhere else. And so the more unhealthy my attachment is, the more unhealthy attachments I continue to seek out, which then spirals me into further unhealthy attachment. So yes, secure folks can become disrupted, um, but they are far more likely to stay stable because they have a better idea of what they need from other people. Mm, okay, thank you. <clears throat> then I was thinking, what role do communication patterns play in damaging dam damaging attachment styles and how can these patterns be improved? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, communication is like the name of the game when it comes to attachment. We're communicating emotions, we're communicating needs, we're communicating boundaries, we're communicating joy with each other or dissatisfaction with each other. So I think something pretty universal. The more I'm exposed to language that is degrading, dehumanizing, offensive, insulting, abusive, over time, just by nature, that's going to start to stick to me. You know, if I'm constantly being uh, exposed to language that's harmful to me, it's only human nature for me to eventually adopt that as my own language, even if I was someone who was secure at one point. And so the more harmful language you're exposed to, the more disrupted your attachment becomes. Attachment requires me to have a solid understanding of me. And it requires me to have a solid understanding of you. And if you continue to hurt me, my self-esteem goes down, the capacity to trust my own wants and desires go down, I'm far more likely to sacrifice myself or hurt myself in the context of the relationship, I'm far less likely to step away from someone who's hurting me. And so harmful language is the highest risk of disrupting attachment, especially when it comes from someone who is supposed to care for us, namely parents, peers, and partners. Um, and like I said before, harmful language has a bigger impact than helpful language. I wish it wasn't so, especially as a trauma therapist. You wish that wasn't the truth, but it is. And I think it's important that we look at the truth. Um, but we also need to be mindful of how my communication to myself and to others addresses attachment. If I have a lot of really negative self-talk, well, I'm not going to think I'm as worthy or deserving of love and care. And that's going to change the way I show up in a relationship. If I'm conflictual or harmful to others, I'm going to change the way that they show up and meet me. And so anytime someone really examines their communication and how they need to adjust it so their attachment can be healthier, how do I tolerate communication from others? How do I talk to myself? And then how do I talk to other people? Do I need to improve my communication style? Right? Am I too passive? Am I too passive aggressive? Do I need to be a little more assertive? Um, do I need to improve my self-talk? What's this narrative going on up here? Uh, do I need to learn that when someone's being harmful, how I can advocate for myself or stand up for myself or just completely step away from someone who has harmful communication? But if we shift into something a little less clear, because I think most people can pick out harmful communication, we have uncertain communication. Maybe someone's inconsistent. Sometimes they need closeness, sometimes they don't. Maybe uh, someone's too critical or overly judging. Maybe um, someone doesn't speak clearly or doesn't express themselves. That can cause a lot of confusion in the connection, where now I'm starting to guess 
which means I'm probably going to project my stuff onto the other person. And now I don't even know if I'm meeting their needs. That's also going to disrupt the connection and our attachment together. And if I'm trying my best to meet my partner's needs and they reject it or it's not working, I'm going to put that back on myself. Clearly, I'm not doing a good enough job. There goes that self-talk. And so uncertain communication is less clear, but it can sometimes be far more nefarious because you don't even know it's happening. So not only do we need to make sure that our communication is healthy and appropriate, but we also need to make sure that our communication is clear and concise. And that can be a little bit harder to work through on our own. You said the last part can be hard to work through on our own. Uh, Why? Why it's hard? Well, because communication requires what's called reciprocity, right? Again, if you think back, little kids. Little kids don't just learn by hearing and seeing. They learn from the interaction. If I say something funny and then my parent smiles, I learn from their smile that they find me funny. But if I'm just looking in the mirror and I tell a joke, I have no idea if I'm funny or not. And so then I don't know how to take that joke into a social setting because I don't have any baseline of how I expect people to act towards me. And so if I have communication that isn't being received well, that isn't being understood well, that doesn't have good reciprocity, well, then how do I even know what to change, right? We don't know what we don't know. And so that's why working with obviously safe clinicians and providers, but also making sure we have solid friends and supports in our life because it's through the interaction that I learned how to change my communication. And we can't do that alone. I'm a big believer that no relationship is worth worth self-sacrifice. And so if you're trying and you're trying with your due diligence to make things healthier with your partner and they're just not meeting you for whatever reason, It's usually a pretty big sign that this is incompatible. And being incompatible doesn't mean you don't love each other. It doesn't mean that you're bad people. It just means what we need to be taken care of doesn't match. So we can never take care of each other, which means the relationship can never be secure. And so if you find yourself willing to do anything, you're probably an anxious attacher. And if you find that your partner is unable or unwilling to meet even a little bit in your direction to improve, then that might be a good sign that this is an unhealthy or an unsustainable connection. You know, healthy relationships are not perfect, but they are reciprocal. And so if I say to my partner, hey, this isn't working, and they meet with some level of understanding, then there's a good sign that we can get to a better place. But if they deny my experience or they tell me that my experience is invalid or, um, Maybe they try to express that I'm being the unhealthy one and it's hard for me to accept that. Then we might not be able to make improvement there. And that can come with a lot of grief. Um, But one of the most important things an anxious person can do in healing their attachment is learning to walk away when it no longer serves them. That's how you stop being anxiously attached. Not figuring out what needs to happen to get them to be where you are. And that's a hard thing to do. Mm, thank you. Mm-hmm. Then what do you think? How do different attachment styles impact the way we express and receive love? Oh, yeah. 
I have a whole range of thoughts on this. Because <laughs> um, again, attachment, like we talked about, is my capacity to hold me and you evenly. Maybe a little bit me more. Okay. And so let's kind of go through a little bit about different attachments and how they can impact how we receive and feel loved. Um, so first off, if I'm with someone who's secure, secure attachments know how to show it and they know how to accept it. Um, they are going to allow me to be vulnerable and open and authentic, which is going to make me feel more seen, which is going to make me feel even safer to express love in more varied and intimate ways. And I can trust that their love is coming from a healthy, authentic place. I don't have to suspect that there's any ulterior motive to their love. I can just trust that it's real, which then opens my safety to accept it. And that's really how that connection builds with a secure person. You know, I trust that if I make a mistake or I misstep, they're not going to revoke their love because their love doesn't have conditions. And I can trust that they can make mistakes. And that doesn't mean that the relationship is going to come to an end. And so it really is in relationships with people that are secure that giving and receiving love feels the most satisfying. But I think very few people are purely secure. So let's be a little more real here. Okay. <laughs> um, anxious attachments. When we are in a connection with someone who's anxious, um, it can make us second guess the love we're trying to give because they may not be able to trust me. They may constantly be seeking reassurance from me or questioning how real I am in the relationship or how stable the relationship is. And so that can make me feel tested or unable to be good enough to my partner, which then makes me doubt how good I am at showing love. Um, they may also be reactive to my attempts at showing love, which further makes me a little more confused. You know, if I think I'm doing a good job and they can't receive it, I'm always going to doubt that. They may also reject attempts to take care of them. And partners should not be caretakers, but we should be care uh, expressors. And if I want to help my partner, but they won't let me help them, again, that can make me feel like I'm not really needed in the relationship or make me feel less important. And so connecting with someone who's anxious can make it feel a little unstable in how we give and receive. And sometimes they might give very intensely. And sometimes that intense giving can be uncomfortable. And then we might feel guilt about how uncomfortable it is to, to receive their big shows of love. Avoidant attachers are a little different because they struggle to show love. Um, or they at least struggle to show deep or meaningful love. I think um, some people have this impression that avoiders don't want relationships. And that's not true. Avoiders do want relationships. They just think that it is so unlikely to get a good relationship that they would rather be in control of ending it, right? Avoiders are all about power. Uh, and so they're not going to be giving very much. They are also probably going to reject the love that's given to them. Um, and again, that's going to make us doubt how much we feel loved. Um, it's going to make it hard for us to express our emotions. We may feel pressured to increase how we show love, like, please just stay, like, please listen to me, which can make us feel a little more frantic in our love sharing. Um, and overall, it can make us feel pretty inadequate. 
especially when they eventually walk away. But there are two more, a little more disrupted attachments that don't get talked about as much. And I think it's important that we talk about them. Because um, while avoiders do have a higher risk of hurting because of their capacity to walk away, avoiders are not always intentional in how they harm. And there are attachment styles that are a little more intentional in how they harm. Um, so next we have what's called disorganized attachment. Um, and that's that kind of push-pull that often comes from a lot of pretty, uh, pretty intense interpersonal trauma. Sometimes I want you close and then I'll push you away. Sometimes I'm loving and other times I'm volatile. Um, we see disorganized attachment in things like trauma disorders um, and some personality disorders. And it can be really, really hard and unstabilizing to successfully show love to someone with a disorganized attachment. There is an element of unpredictability and chaos, which can make it hard and confusing to know how our partner wants to be treated. Um, and they may also bounce between showing me love and showing me harm, which can make me feel unsafe in the relationship because I don't know what version of them I'm going to get moment to moment. And I also can't trust how much they mean their love based on how intense their harm was. And so that can make it really unsafe. But there is one kind of more understudied attachment style that is just kind of built on the fact that they really are only in the relationship for themselves. And I call that self-focused attachment. And that's really where we see things more like narcissists, antisocial personality, um, psychopathic behavior, because they only care about the relationship for the benefit that it brings them. So yeah, I might be afraid to lose you, but I'm afraid to lose you because of how you help me. Maybe you're a target for my narcissistic supply. I don't want to have to go find someone else. I just want you. Can't you just suck it up? Right? Maybe you give me status. Maybe you give me uh, comfort in my life. But I don't actually care about who you are as a person. I care about the benefits that comes from you being my partner. And so when we find ourselves sucked into these self-focused attachments, they don't care about receiving or showing love. Now, sometimes they may act like they're giving love, love bombing, manipulation, right? And it can be really hard to tell based on how skilled they are at these tools. Um, but that's usually just an end to justify a mean. They don't really feel those feelings. And so they're not receiving the love I'm giving. They're usually rejecting it. And they're certainly not giving me back anything authentic. And so you can understand how an anxious person can easily get caught up in the web of someone's self-focus. It is impossible, based on their development, for them to give me anything genuine. And if I'm not meeting their needs exactly as they want me to, they're going to continue denying and eventually even harming or abusing me, which just makes this experience confusing and unsafe. So I know that was long-winded a bit, but I thought that it was really important to kind of walk through those different attachments because they are so vastly different. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. That was also very interesting to hear. Yeah. Then what do you think? I like this question as well. How do attachment styles impact our ability to set boundaries in relationships? And what are some ways to improve boundary setting skills to prevent damage to attachment styles? 
Yes. <laughs> Boundaries are the cornerstone of a healthy relationship. Boundaries are not punishments. They're not punitive. Boundary is the line that I say, here's how I love you and me equally. Here's what I need from you. And here's what I'm willing to give in return. And so a boundary is not a demand. A boundary is a relational kind of contractor understanding. Hey, this thing hurts me. And so if you keep doing it, then this is what I'm going to do in response. I'm going to stop talking to you. I'm going to walk away from the conversation or end the relationship. Right. And again, depending on the attachment style that we're talking to determines how they set boundaries and how they receive my boundaries. So again, let's say we're talking to someone secure. They're good at setting boundaries. They know what they want. They know what they're willing to tolerate, but it's reasonable. You know, it's not rigid or controlling. They just want to be loved in a healthy way. So secure people are really great at setting boundaries with flexibility because they also understand people make mistakes and nobody's perfect. And so they're not going to punish you if you cross a boundary. They're just going to be firm and resetting it. Um, but they're also likely to receive your boundaries well because they actually care about you. You know, if a, if a partner says to their secure partner, hey, it hurt me when you made a comment about my body, I'm going to actually care that I hurt you. I don't want to hurt you. So I'm going to hear that and go, I did not want to hurt you. I'm not going to do that anymore. So boundaries are best set in secure relationships. <laughs> Insecure attachments really struggle to set their boundaries because, again, they are so willing to sacrifice themselves for the sake of the connection. And in fact, they may not even think about themselves at all as being important in the relationship. You know, they rarely ask to be treated a certain way. And they're very unlikely to walk away when they've been mistreated. And if you remember, a boundary is me making a request and my follow through when that request is broken. So someone who's insecure might say, don't talk to me like that. But if you talk to me like that, I don't do anything to defend myself. I don't do anything to set safety for myself. I kind of just take it. So then people are less likely to take my boundary serious because they know there's no consequences, you know? Um... But when someone has insecure attachment um, and that they're anxious, they can also be hurt when their partner sets a boundary. You know, if a partner says, hey, please don't do that. They may internalize it. They may think that they've done something wrong or that they're a bad person. And so they might like really, really, really try to follow that boundary to maintain the connection, even if it's a boundary that hurts them. And so again, when you think about what we'll talk about in a second, those harmful boundaries that are set, an anxious per person is far more likely to follow along to unhealthy boundaries. Um, avoidant people are a little too good at setting boundaries because they are often way too rigid. Um, and sometimes avoiders will set boundaries on purpose to sabotage a relationship or to give them a reason to walk away from a relationship. You know, so it might be something like very normal. Like, I hate when you talk during TV. And then they're going to use that as an excuse to leave the relationship because they're always looking for an out. Even if that boundary is like not very realistic at all, you know. Um, and when you set a boundary with an avoider, they're going to follow the boundary by leaving. So not only do avoiders set boundaries way too firm and rigid and unrealistic, but they also have much bigger escape tactics when a boundary is set with them. And so that can make it very hard to set boundaries 
you know, because if I'm afraid my partner's going to leave, then I might not set the boundary at all. And that can make things pretty unsafe. Um, for folks that are more disorganized, that push-pull that we talked about, they're in and then they're out, they struggle to set boundaries because they don't always even know what they want. Um, and they may kind of waver or change in how capable they feel of expressing themselves. Um, they're unlikely to uphold their own boundaries, and they may even cross their own boundaries, right? Like one day I might set a boundary, and then the next day completely ignore the own boundary that I set. Um, and so that can make boundaries uncertain or porous, um, and they're kind of intermittent in their ability to follow the boundaries of others. Um, sometimes they might get really angry at you for setting the boundary. And then finally, that self-focused, more narcissistic attachment style, um, they set boundaries that are very rigid and very harmful. Um, there are less boundaries and more demands and acts of control placed on others. Don't speak when I'm spoken to, only eat certain foods, don't do this, don't wear that, don't go see those people. Those are not boundaries in a relationship. Those are demands. And there's no healthy place for demands in a safe relationship. Um, and they also do not respond well when boundaries are crossed. They might punish you for breaking the boundary instead of leaving you because um, they want to make you feel bad while maintaining the connection because they benefit. Um, and they do not follow boundaries set by the other person. Because again, they don't care about the needs of another person. And they might intentionally trample on those boundaries just to show you that they can. Um, which again is, is further evidence of how anxious people are really at risk of being hurt by self-focused people. And so, in summary of that long-winded explanation, boundaries are the line of how I need to be treated and how I'm willing to respond to that treatment caring about me and you equally. And so if I struggle with boundaries, there's a few things we need to do. Um, I need to improve my communication. I need to become more assertive. I need to improve the beliefs about myself. I need to believe I deserve boundaries. I need to believe that I deserve to be treated well. Um, but I also need to improve my beliefs about other people. I need to make sure I don't view you as some grand special person that just gets to make whatever demands of me that, that you want. Um, I need to improve my understanding of my own needs. Like, do I even know what it means to be emotionally taken care of? Do I even know what it means to be soothed or loved? Um, and I need to make sure that I understand the needs of my partner. And I need to care about the needs of my partner. But the biggest thing that's required for healthy boundary setting and attachment is I need to be able to tolerate that relationships end. If I'm afraid to set a boundary because I'm afraid the relationship will end, then that is an unhealthy, unsustainable relationship, and I should want it to end. But if my fear of abandonment is so extreme that I'm willing to sacrifice myself to maintain the connection, I can never be good at setting boundaries. Um, but tolerating rupture uh, and loss of relationship is some of the hardest steps in healing our attachment. Hey, I hope you are enjoying the episode. If you want to improve your boundary setting skills when you have an anxious attachment style, I've got you covered. I've created a mini course to help you improve at setting boundaries with yourself and others if you have an anxious attachment style. You can find the link to access this free mini course in the podcast notes. What steps can someone take to repair an insecure attachment style? Oh yeah. And I want to be mindful when I say steps, 
there is not a formula. Obviously, because there are five and potentially even more, but there are at least five concrete known attachment styles, depending on how you're coming into this work, an avoider is going to look very different than someone who's anxious. Um, But again, it can be boiled down to a few things. First, we need to improve our fear of abandonment. Why does loss feel so scary? Why are we so worried about the capacity to build future relationships with other people? If I don't fear being alone forever, I'm far more likely to set boundaries and choose relationships that are good for me because I trust I'm not going to be abandoned. And so working on that fear is crucial. And for a lot of folks, that fear is rooted in trauma. Um, and so doing trauma work about around that is important. Um, you also need to improve that balance between isolation and enmeshment. We need to be our own individual people and we need to feel safe as a part of a connection. We don't become a partner. We are still a person. But we also don't want to be too comfortable being alone with ourselves because then we're not as likely to seek out other people. And so finding this balance of being connected while still maintaining our individuality is a really important part of healing attachment. Um, And in order for me to know my individuality, I got to know who I am. What do I like to do? What are my root beliefs? What are my value systems and the goals for my life? Um, And sometimes that takes a pretty deep look to figure that out. We also need to improve our desires for closeness. How safe do you feel expressing emotions to people? How comfortable do you feel when people express emotions back? Do you have any body-based trauma that makes touch or physical intimacy uncomfortable? Do you struggle with entitlement around physical intimacy? Like you feel like it's something that you just deserve. Really figuring out how we can have healthy closeness that doesn't harm another person is pretty important. Um, And so healing from trauma Looking at our histories of neglect and abuse, um, managing our experiences around betrayal and loss are all really important. We need to manage any mental health or physical health challenges that are hurdles to taking care of ourselves. Um, we need to improve all relationships in our life, not just the relationship with our partner. You know, we need to build steady support systems. Um, We probably need to do some grief work around damaged and lost relationships. And again, I can't stress enough, um, we need to be able to tolerate the emotions that come from a loss or a rupture. And I would say most people have the capacity to improve their attachment, except for self-focused. If someone with a self-focused attachment comes into the therapy space, it can take a while before you know. Because, you know, they're pretty good at, again, even using the therapy relationship as an ends to a means. Um, and so they're, they're pretty good at putting on a show. Um, but once you realize that this person doesn't actually care about me, maybe they dehumanize me or they're abusive or they're narcissistic, then sometimes we do have to abandon a little bit any hope that they're going to improve. Um, and if anybody is listening to this that is self-focused, they're probably not connecting to this because self-focused people don't view themselves as self-focused. They view themselves as righteous and deserving. Um, But if there's any part of someone who realizes, oh, dang, I forgot to take care of the needs of other people in my life, that's where you need to start. 
um, because they're probably pretty good already at taking care of themselves. Then now they need to open up the door of how they can care for other people as well. Thank you so much for all your answers. And uh, I want to thank everyone for listening. And I think we had some great questions and very great answers. So uh, yeah, thank you, Monica, so much for coming to this episode and giving such insightful and practical advice. I really enjoyed it. and I'm sure many, many of us did. Thank you. You got it. I think it's such an important thing to talk about and I love talking about it. So I hope more people can just find it within them to get those resources to heal their attachment. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and share the episode with your friends and family. Have a wonderful rest of your day and see you in the next episode.